You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I chat with Perth Toll, who is the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes and creator of the Freedom 100 EM Index. Prior to forming Life and Liberty Indexes, Perth was a private wealth advisor at Fidelity Investments. Perth is also a frequent speaker at investment industry events and provides commentary for various financial media, including Barron's, Bloomberg, Cheddar, CNBC, CNN, Fox Business, Market Watch, Morningstar, and even the Wall Street Journal. Perth was named one of the 10 to watch in 2020 by Wealth Management Magazine and one of the top 100 people transforming business by Business Insider in 2021. During this episode, Perth discusses the relationship between freedom and markets in emerging economies. With a background working in Beijing and Hong Kong, Perth shares her insight into the risks and challenges investors face when investing in authoritarian regimes and why she believes including freedom metrics in your investment process is important. Perth shares why she believes traditional emerging market ETFs are flawed and the concept behind her Freedom 100 EM index. Perth also elaborates on the four main types of autocracy risk for investors, which countries these risks are most prevalent in and provides examples of specific companies that were affected by these risks. She also touches on which emerging market companies she is most bullish on, such as Chile and Taiwan, as well as touches on some other risks top of mind for investors, such as the ongoing US-China tensions, why she thinks investors should avoid Chinese equities, her thoughts on the delisting risks, the China-Taiwan risk, as well as the biggest opportunities facing emergent markets in the coming years. And one quick housekeeping note before we dive into today's episode. For longtime listeners of the show, you may know who I am, whose voice this is. I am Robert Leonard, the original host of this podcast. For those who don't know me, I started the show back in August 2019 with TIP, and I hosted it for the first few years. And then I turned it over to Clay, who hosted it for about a year or so. And then he relatively recently turned it over to Rebecca. Going forward, I will be back behind the mic hosting the show for a while at least until we bring in a new host, which we'll be hiring for very soon. So if you're interested, stay tuned for that announcement in the next few episodes. All right, that's it for housekeeping today. I'm excited to be back with you guys and be back behind the mic. Let's get into this episode with Perth Toll. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I am your host, Robert Leonard, and on today's show, I am joined by Perth Toll. Welcome to the show, Perth. Thanks for having me. I got interested in your work from reading your articles online, and I want to start today's show by talking about your background a little bit. I was hoping you could share a bit on how your experiences in Beijing and Hong Kong led you to explore the relationship between freedom and markets. Sure. Thank you. So I grew up in both China and the US. I was born in Beijing, lived there until I was about nine years old, and then moved to the US and traveled back and forth throughout my childhood. After college, I went and lived in Hong Kong for about a year during which time I traveled to the mainland, to Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen often. And that's when I first really opened my eyes to the impact of freedom in my life and also in the markets in these various places, US versus Hong Kong, 
at the time versus the mainland. For example, I had a friend in Shanghai who we called Maggie. At this time, I was around 23 and 24, and she was the exact same age as me, just like all of my American friends in every way. Except Maggie didn't exist on paper. She has no birth certificate, no school records, no social security benefits. Just doesn't exist on paper. And that's because she was born the second child during the one-child policy era, which defines the culture of my generation in China, and also has led to now the worst demographics in the world and 30 million missing women in the country due to official Chinese think tank estimates, and some have it as twice that. So Maggie's one of the lucky ones. She's not one of the missing women, but she, you know, doesn't exist. On paper, so I realized, wow, that could have been me. And these policies and this governance in a country has a huge impact on the future of a society and its markets. So that's when I started to first explore the relationship between freedom and markets. And when I came back to the U.S., I worked at Fidelity as a financial advisor in the L.A. and Houston markets. And I had a lot of clients, you know, like I had a Russian client who told me, "Hey, I don't want to invest in Russia because it would be like funding terrorism." And I felt the same way about China a lot. And so I wanted to create a way for investors who always have an emerging markets allocation to be able to fill that allocation without funding autocracies. I want to get into these freedom metrics a bit more. Talk a little bit more about what metrics you're looking at and how your indexes in total would differ from just investing in a total emerging markets index. Sure. So we are looking at freedom metrics that encompass both personal and economic freedoms, and we get our data from third-party think tanks that use quantitative variables. So we're using data from the Cato Institute and Fraser Institute. They have a human freedom index and data set, which has 83 variables across the spectrum of both personal, which is civil and political, and economic freedoms. So examples of civil freedom are things like terrorism, trafficking, torture, wars, whether it be invading other countries or internal organized conflict. Women's freedoms are part of、uh, this as well, and there's five proxies for women's freedom, such as women's freedom of movement, women's freedom to inherit, women's rights to children after a divorce, things like that. Political freedoms are things like freedom of expression, freedom of speech, media, religion, assembly, civil procedure, criminal procedure, judicial independence, and so forth. And economic freedoms are things we're more familiar with, like taxation, business regulations, freedom to trade internationally. The higher the free trade, the better. Soundness of the money supply. And in eras of inflation, this this is extremely important to bring down that that inflation and that currency risk as well. So. These are the things that we're looking at. We we take the composite country score given to us by the Cato and the Fraser Institutes, and we derive our country weights based on those scores. So, are there any countries then that just do not make the cut at all? Like they just don't make it into your index? And if so, which ones are they? The freedom weighting algorithm actually does naturally exclude. The worst autocracies, so the worst scoring countries like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, Qatar, UAE, those don't make it into the index at all. So we have zero allocation to China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. And that's been the case since the inception of our strategy became publicly traded in 2019. So we were able to sidestep both the various crises in China over the last few years, and also the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we've been fortunate in that. In these very extreme kind of black swan events, which the emerging markets are full of, we've been able to come out unscathed, so to speak. Our investors have been able to kind of sidestep those risks. 
one of the big differences that came to mind is the weighting of Chinese equities and how that potentially impacts returns of the typical ETF or index compared to yours. We can get into how Chinese equities have outperformed and underperformed. We'll get into that a little bit later, but I'm wondering how have your returns stacked up compared to just the total emerging market index? Yeah, so since inception, we have stark outperformance over the, let's say, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. I'll just look up the numbers here, but it is, it's extremely, extremely stark right now. And we do seek to be the kind of a, a scorecard, a running scorecard for freedom in the emerging market space. So since inception, our strategy, the freer emerging markets strategy is up 27% and EEM, which is based on the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, is up 7%. So this is since May of 2019. And if you look at you know the one year, the three year, and the year to date, it's telling the same story of the freer markets do tend to outperform. But I wouldn't expect that every year. So everyone that I, that I share this with, I, I would want to emphasize, we had some very extreme events in the past several three and a half years or so. We had COVID, we had the China tech crackdown, we had, you know, founders being disappeared and that's still happening today. Just these kind of black swan events that really show the the value of a freedom weighted strategy, but also I wouldn't expect to have these events every year. So now there's always something in emerging markets, but it is a very stark outperformance story right now. We'll get into the top countries in the freedom weighted metric in just a minute. But before we do, I want to touch on this article that you wrote on the four main elements of autocracy risk for investors in countries under authoritarian rule. So I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about these risks and how they can affect companies' investors in practice. Yeah. So the article that I did for Barron's does talk about these types of risks. And um, I wrote that article after COVID zero and then the protests happened. So it was extremely heartening and encouraging for me to see protests happen without immediate reports of a crackdown on the protesters when they were protesting against COVID zero in cities like Beijing, Shanghai, and a lot of other cities across China. I don't know if you remember this, but it only happened very uh, briefly. Afterwards, there was a crackdown on the people that they could find who were present at the protests. And it was kind of set off by this fire that happened due to and, and due to COVID zero. People died because the firefighters couldn't get through to the properties. So when that happened, everyone was asking, hey, is this a sea change in China? And, you know, are we how encouraged are you by this? And as an investor, it changed nothing for me, as encouraged I w- as it was you know, for, for me to see that. And I think it was a flicker of hope in, in that time, but it didn't change any of the fundamental risks of investing in authoritarian countries. And one of those risks is misplaced priorities, which means companies in China, for example, and in other you know, autocratic regimes have to put the state's interests before everyone else's interests. So before the interests of their shareholders, before the interests of their customers sometimes. So as an example of that, Tencent, who owns the WeChat app in China, WeChat has been used by the government to crack down on dissidents, on um, Uyghurs for a long time. And whenever, and, and even in the latest Congress that we saw this weekend in China, data 
security was a big issue. And that just means by data security, I mean the government wants access to all the data that these companies have. And that is used to, you know, often crack down on citizens who may disagree with the government. And Tencent has to hand over this data, whether it's in the best interest of their customers or not. And some of their customers will be detained, jailed, worse, because they've handed over this data. But they have to do that because they have to put state interests above all others whether it's in the best interest of their customers or their shareholders or not. There's also the capricious government you know, interference risk where the government could come in overnight and say, oh, by the way, you're no longer allowed to participate in your core business activity. You are no longer allowed to raise capital overseas. You are no longer a for-profit company. Now you're a nonprofit. So this all happened in China in the last year and a half or so. Didi had to take their app down from the app store and say, you know, we can't accept any more new customers because they tried to um, have an IPO overseas and apparently didn't get approved and did it anyway. That did not turn out well for them. Education companies in China were told that they were nonprofits overnight. Friday night, stroke of a pen, you're nonprofits now. That's not something that shareholders can recover from. So these types of things, you know, right now, tech is still a main area of crackdown in China. You can see the Baofan, the, the tech deal guy who is currently disappeared and detained for political purposes. So, um, and he had a hand in every big tech deal in China. So it's a very real risk of heavy handed government interference in private market activity. But it's not just China. You see also what happened with Russia, sanctions risk, right? If you invade another country, your market could be marked to zero due to all the ramifications of that. So all of these risks are still very present in China, despite, you know, the the very short-lived protests that happened that kind of ended COVID zero, which, which is great. But as an investor, none of these risks have changed. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. 
Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I want to touch on the risk of being nationalized. You mentioned that they could be, and a company could be restricted from their core activities, or I guess at the very extreme nationalized. How does that work? And maybe what's an example of a company that has been nationalized? So I'm going to use a, actually a non-China example for that. Very recently in Egypt, the biggest dairy company in Egypt, the government said, we want to nationalize this company. The founder said no and got thrown in jail. And his son also said no and was thrown in jail as well. So these are types of things that happen in the emerging markets space because the emerging market space is just so full of autocracies and companies just coming out of autocracies. In a situation like that, basically the government takes over ownership of the company and operations. Something similar that happened in China that I can point to is SMIC, the semiconductor company in Shanghai. This is a company that was founded by expat Americans who are actually from Taiwan and they went back to China and founded this company. It's controversial and uh, TSMC alleges that they stole a lot of the IP from them and they did, SMIC did lose a lawsuit Uh, regarding that. And TSMC won that suit alleging the IP theft. But in the end, what happened with this company was it was basically taken over by state appointees and the founder has now been run out. And it's essentially now owned and operated by the government and its appointees. And so that causes a company to become a lot less efficiently run, in our opinion. We do exclude state-owned enterprises. Now, in in certain of these countries like China or Egypt, a lot of non-state-owned enterprises are essentially state-run as well, like SMIC. So that's one of the tail risks when you're investing in these autocratic regimes. Then what happens to shareholders when that happens? What's the process like? Well, in that situation with SMIC, of course, their share price has declined drastically. They ended up kind of re-IPOing on the Starboard, which is the Chinese exchange. So they did have another IPO and it did pop on that IPO. IPOs on the Starboard tend to pop, though, on their initial trading because of state support. So a lot of these companies do depend on kind of government support to operate. And we just don't think that is the most efficient way to operate companies or to have sustainable growth. The freer markets tend to have you know more sustainable growth that's not state mandated or debt driven. They tend to recover faster from drawdowns, as we saw in the recovery in 2020. And they tend to you know, use their capital more efficiently because they're allocating that capital 
due to, you know, according to the needs on the ground and providing the best value for their customers instead of whatever the government is telling them to do. So you saw the smart car revolution in China a couple of years ago that was driven by government kind of subsidies. Now, there's ways to invest in that and participate in that without direct autocracy risk. One of those ways is invest in other emerging countries that have free trade. So Chile has a lot of free trade with China. Chilean companies such as SQM pivoted from mining copper mostly to mining lithium for the batteries in these electric vehicles. And so in that way, investors in Chilean companies were able to benefit from the unfree uh, market in China and their demand for electric vehicles due to government subsidies without autocracy risk by investing in Chilean companies like SQM. So that's what we try to do as well. We try to capture growth in emerging markets without direct autocracy risk. Another risk you talk about in your article is the different accounting practices that many of these regimes use that lack international oversight. And because of that, the U.S. has taken some measures over the last few years to crack down on this accounting inconsistencies, you could call them, to really try to protect investors from instances like luck and coffee, where accounting just isn't up to par or at worst, and maybe this case was fraudulent. So it's not necessarily happening right this second, but it's happened over the last couple of years. So it's still relatively recent. The SEC is cracking down on Chinese companies in particular. How do you see this affecting the future of investing in Chinese companies? Yeah. So Luckin is a very good example that actually was a while ago, but when it happened, it was, it made a big splash because it was so fraudulent and so blatant. And I think the short sellers out there, like Muddy Waters, for example, saw it coming a mile away, but nobody else did. And in fact, I had family and friends in Asia who were talking to me about it. They're like, Oh, it's going to be the next Starbucks, you know? And then after the fall, after the, you know, the whole, you know, news came out that it was fraudulent and this, this stock crashed. There were still videos going around on Chinese internet where people were just making fun of Americans. Like, oh, look at these, you know, Luckin's the greatest company in the world because, you know, and they literally said stupid Americans retirement money and gives free copy to Chinese people. I mean, it was, it's like a big running joke, right? And so I think that is a really good example of how we sometimes as investors in very free markets and being used to the you know rule of law, the investor protections, the IP protections, the stronger institutions that we enjoy here in whether it be New York or London or you know other places that have very strong institutions, very free capital movement and very high accounting standards that we project that same standard and optimism onto companies that are in in places that just don't have that. And so we are able to, you know, we buy into these great growth stories and, oh, it's the next Starbucks, but we don't account for the difference in accounting, the difference in governance in the place where that company operates. So when Luckin fell, the biggest holders in Luckin and funds were not the China funds. It was the emerging markets funds on an absolute basis because emerging markets funds are so big. Funds like EEM, IEMG, and VWO took the biggest fall from that. And this is these these are investors who are just trying to get a broad emerging markets allocation. They weren't trying to invest in Luckin. They weren't trying to invest in Chinese companies even. It was just for emerging markets allocation. So that's one of the things that you know we were able to avoid. But also, it's a really good example of just not being aware of these risks can really hurt you as a you know, broad emerging markets investor. I'm glad you brought up those specific funds too, because I think 
most investors are pretty familiar with those ones in particular for emerging market exposure. Do you have any insights or updates on where all of that is now? Do you think that this risk is still very apparent and some companies could end up falling out or wiping out of these indexes? Yes, I do. I think that is a risk. And I think that the bipartisan support for measures like this is gaining momentum. It used to be that, you know, when we first launched the fund in 2019, we were the only ones saying this in the, you know, kind of ETF space. Now the tide has turned and we are no longer, we no longer have to be as loud or as contradictory because everyone agrees that this is a problem, especially after Russia. So in those, those funds and other kind of China funds or other emerging market funds that have high China concentration, most of these funds have taken steps by now to kind of change to H shares of the same companies. So let's say you have a company that's listed in the US as an ADR, the funds are in process or have already changed to a Hong Kong listing. So yes, this actually does help Hong Kong listings a bit. But if you are an investor who is owning, say one of these ADRs that's gonna be delisted without being in a fund that's making these transitions, then yeah, that's something that is going to affect you and it could be very bad. So usually when a delisting happens, you can still sell, but the liquidity is going to be very narrow. There's not going to be a lot of liquidity. So you're probably going to sell at a very, very low price. So if you are an investor and you're currently investing in Chinese ADRs that are on the list to be delisted in the next three years, I would prepare yourself for that by either, you know, transitioning to a fund that's more diversified if you still want that exposure or selling while you can. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because big companies like Alibaba, they assured investors, they're like, we will comply and and get everything right, but it could be pure panic. Then if something happens in the news where they're skeptical, like you said, the share price could crash and then investors won't have a big window to get out in time, you know, just everybody knows. So yeah, it's a big risk with companies like Alibaba. So that is a, a major tail risk that's coming for these stocks. Now, most people do are, are already aware of this. So hopefully everyone is taking precaution. Now, the fund houses, I know for a fact. So if you're in a fund, that shouldn't be a huge deal for you. It's more going to be a problem for these companies that are listed. They're not going to be able to raise capital in U.S. markets anymore. And that's going to be for them to deal with. But yeah, if you're if you're an investor, you have Chinese ADRs on this list, you should probably try to take cover. Would you say that Chinese companies have an incentive to stay on the American exchanges? it would be pretty devastating for them to get kicked off, would it not? Yeah, and you can argue that they should have known this the whole time, that this was a loophole created by actually American lawyers and American exchanges to make money off of these listings. And Wall Street greed can always be counted on to create these kind of situations that in the end hurts investors. So I would say that, yes, Chinese companies have a huge incentive to try to revamp their accounting standards to meet these listing standards. And the fact that they haven't done so yet, the fact that this is still a debate after years of this delisting situation has already happened, after years of being listed on these exchanges, shows that for Chinese companies, their self-interest does not come first, that the interest of the state comes first. And if the state tells you, you know, our data is a state secret, which they do, that is a law in China, all companies' data are state secret. And So therefore, it is impossible for these companies to abide by both Chinese law and by American listing standards, because American listing standards do say we have to have access to your data. So for them, it's impossible to meet those standards. So so yeah, I think that every company that's currently listed in the US in China does want to meet these standards. But unfortunately, 
because they operate in an autocracy. They're not able to do so lawfully in their own country. Wow. Yeah. I've never really heard it put like that before. I guess I was just more on the optimistic side of things where I would just think they would do everything they could to, I guess, be in the SEC's good graces. But that's a very good point where it just might not be possible based on their own laws in their own country. So let's get back to the good way to invest in emerging markets or perhaps more efficient and a better way. You highlighted Chile and I know Taiwan in, a, in another article as a relatively free emerging markets for investors to consider. What are the characteristics about these countries and just characteristics in general for good emerging countries for investors? Yeah, so Chile actually last year has been one of the shining stars in you know emerging markets performance as well because of their diversified commodities exposure. And this is a country that has less than 1% in most cap-weighted emerging markets indices. So you're getting a very under allocation to Chile, in my opinion, if you're only invested in cap-weighted emerging markets index funds. Now, the reason why we like Chile is because we do we freedom weight, right? So their personal and economic freedom levels are very high compared to their peers in the emerging market space. So we're looking at absolute freedom levels, both personal and economic freedom compared to other emerging markets in the universe. And so Chile gets a high score because of that. And as a result, a high weight in our index. In addition, Chile has very free trade. So they actually do a lot of trade with China and we don't we don't penalize that. We believe that companies should be free to operate in a manner that is they determine is best for their clients and their shareholders. And when they determine it's best to decouple from China, they, they are free to do that as well. So globalization, we believe, is alive and well. And it's providing all the other options, you know, when you want to decouple from any particular country like China or Russia. So in the countries that will benefit from that decoupling, are the freer markets, the ones with stronger institutions, stronger rule of law, stronger personal protections and stronger IP protections and investor protections. So these are the countries that the business will go to from the autocratic regimes. So we're seeing countries like Chile, Taiwan, Mexico, even Indonesia. These are all countries that we're invested in that we believe are well positioned to benefit from any kind of decoupling from China. And in fact, they already are. So you see Mexico really outperforming in the last year because of that kind of reshoring back to the US and countries that are geographically close to the US and have you know trade agreements with the US. So we do see that happening as a trend that's not going away anytime soon. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I know economic growth doesn't necessarily translate into earnings per share growth, but do you factor in economic growth at all into your investment process? With India, for example, it was a hot topic for a while because it was just growing so rapidly. Does that fit into your investment process at all? Yeah, it does as a result of kind of higher freedom countries having higher growth in general and more sustainable growth. So studies have you know shown and we can uh, we use data from the Cato and Fraser Institutes. Fraser Institute actually shows the correlation between economic freedom and GDP, GDP per capita, GDP growth, even things like, you know, it had freer countries not only have higher GDP per capita, but they have lower poverty rates. They have higher economic equality. Despite the higher growth, they have higher gender equality, lower mortality rates, and lower infant mortality rates, higher life expectancy, and so forth. There's all these benefits to freedom that are kind of nebulous, but does it translate to stock markets? Well, if you look at stock markets in the very unfree countries, China, again, being Exhibit A, since 1992, which was the inception of the MSCI China Index, and that that index is MCHI, to today, the growth in that index is around 2%. So lower than treasuries during that time, annualized. If you look at GDP around during that time, it's extremely high and consistently high. So it's like 7% a year, right, in China. And it was a really, it was a time of very real growth in China because they went from abysmal policies under Mao, which caused famines that killed tens of millions of people during the culture of the Mao times to not so bad policies economically. And this incremental 
improvement in economic freedom allowed people there to come out of poverty. They raised themselves up out of poverty through the government basically stepping back and getting out of the way. And now we see those policies that made China prosperous kind of going in reverse. And we're going, you know, there's a lot of talk about this looks like the Mao times again, and we're going that direction. So, you know, heads of companies being disappeared very publicly. These are not good signs. And, you know, crackdowns on whole industries, industries that made China's name in the markets like tech. So this is not looking good right now in China. I feel like that is a growth story of the past. And, you know, by looking at freer emerging markets, we can find the growth stories of the future. How do you think the ongoing tensions between the U.S. and China will impact the broader emerging market landscape in China and outside of it? Yeah, so I think the the U.S.-China relations, the way they're going right now, is is definitely not um, bullish for China specifically. It is, however, because of globalization and a lot of free trade in some of these freer emerging markets, going to benefit some of the other emerging markets in the kind of alt-Asia space like Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, which is a frontier market. So those markets are set to benefit from this in the alt-Asia space. I think other markets around the world, like Chile, who has very free trade with China, Taiwan and South Korea, who have free trade and proximity to China, become alternatives as well for investors. And then countries like Mexico, who have very high proximity to the United States, and even India, which is not currently in our index, but very borderline and could be included anytime. So there's a, and even developed markets like Japan, Germany, and the US who are getting kind of business from these, this kind of reshoring that's going on. You know, you see the semiconductor companies building plants in Arizona, in Japan, Germany. So a lot of these other countries will benefit. And I don't think that the slowdown that's exacerbated in China that is exacerbated by poor U.S.-China relations going forward is going to affect the rest of the world. I think actually it'll help the rest of the world. I think that's going to be contained to China at this point. And that is actually, if I were a Chinese in Chinese leadership, I would not want that. I would try to smooth over those relations as much as possible. Were those countries that you just listed then the ones that you were the most bullish on that you think would be the best long-term opportunities for investors going forward? Or do you think about that a little bit differently? No, absolutely. Those are the countries that I'm most bullish on. So especially the freer ones in the emerging market space, that being, you know, Taiwan, Chile, South Korea being the three big ones. And then smaller ones like Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines. So these are countries that will benefit from the reshoring, the decoupling from China, but also even without that trend. These are the places we expect to find the growth stories of the future because they have the launch path for growth, which is the foundation of personal and economic freedoms that incentivize growth and innovation. So these are the countries that we're focused on anyway. The fact that there's a lot of companies that are reshoring now and diversifying their supply chains does help these countries, but these countries are well positioned to launch the next growth stories regardless. Yeah, it's really interesting because a lot of those that you mentioned have a really small weighting in the total market index if you just go buy an emerging market ETF. On the topic of Taiwan, since that's one of your top choices, how are you viewing the risks there with China and all of what's going on right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you mentioned that. So with the Russia-Ukraine situation, we see that the aggressor, which is Russia, has the most autocracy risk and the risk of economic sanctions, of market ramifications, and that 
the autocracy risk lies with the aggressor. So to emerging markets investors, I would say I would be much more concerned about China risk than Taiwan risk in that situation. If China invades Taiwan, not only will none of your investments be safe, not even the S&P 500, because we're now in World War III, but China is going to be hit the hardest. And most emerging markets funds currently have 35% in China still. I mean, it was up to 41% in August of 2021. So that is a much higher risk, in my opinion, than let's say, you know, 18% in Taiwan. So both our fund and EEM or IEMG is going to have between 14 to 18% in Taiwan, but they also have 30% plus in China. And I think that is the, the much bigger risk if you see an escalation of military tensions across the strait. What do you see as some of the biggest trends or themes that are shaping emerging markets in the next few years? So it's interesting because this is a millennial podcast, right? So I think millennials especially are aware of the impact of their dollars. In emerging markets, there is no neutral. Your dollars are making an impact one way or another. You're either funding the freer countries, the countries that are promoting freedom and peace across the world, or you're literally funding autocracies in the emerging market space. And so I think millennials, we have a lot of millennial fan base because of this reason, because we realize that there is no neutral in emerging markets. And the way that emerging markets funds are currently constructed in the cap-weighted funds causes this huge autocracy concentration. So I think going forward, one of the biggest trends in emerging markets investing is going to be freedom weighting or some kind of variation on that. We're already seeing some copycat funds getting spawn off. So now it's a category and that's great. You know, we welcome the competition because it's a, such an important conversation to have and such an important type of strategy in the space. So I think that'll be a new trend. Uh, we do also see a lot of ex-China funds coming out. And I think that is less useful. I think it's a band-aid on a problem that's deeper. So we don't want to just exclude China, right? China is not the problem. It's the lack of freedom in China for investors. That's the problem. So for investors and their citizens, right? So, you know, we're not excluding them arbitrarily or any other countries that we exclude. This is just a natural result of freedom waiting. And if they become more free, my goodness, that's a great place to invest. And we want to put them back in. So if they become freer than the, the you know, average in emerging markets, we welcome them into the index. And that would be a great day because that would mean they have become more free. So we're going to see a lot of these ex-China funds coming out. I don't think that's a, a great solution compared to freedom waiting. But I do see this trend kind of happening around the world. Yeah, it's interesting because some data and some people talk about how millennials and the younger generation, Gen Z are a bit more focused on values or incorporating their values into their investing. Maybe it's because of ESG investing or these platforms that allow you to do this more frequently. But I was actually on Yahoo Finance the other day and I saw that there's like a almost an ESG score. So it seems like it's becoming more prevalent these days. Yeah, or non-traditional metrics, right? So we did this, I mean, no one was using freedom as a metric. Now it's a category. So I think that millennials have a huge part to do there. And, you know, being in a position to direct assets, whether it's your own or other people's, is a position of power and privilege. And I think millennials, more than any other investor base, realizes this and wants to use that power for good. For someone listening to this show who's in the US or maybe even Canada, they might be thinking, why would I bother? Like they want to diversify their portfolio, but why would they bother? Why shouldn't I just, they might be saying to themselves, why shouldn't I just stay in my home country? What advice would you tell this person? 
So yeah, so first of all, I want to caution people who are not used to investing in emerging markets. This is much more volatile than typically developed market investing. And you don't want to kind of, unless you fully understand what you're getting into, you may not want to to try it out. But if you are currently an emerging markets investor and you're always allocated to the emerging markets, which all of the institutions are always allocated to the emerging markets. I come from a fidelity background. So I, you know, at fidelity, depending on the risk level of your portfolio, you always have between five and 20% in emerging markets. So if you are one of those investors that always keeps an emerging market allocation, and you want to do it in a way that captures the highest growth potential countries, which we believe are the freer emerging markets that serve as a launchpad for growth, this is this is a good way to do it. And also without funding autocracies, because a lot of people have been turned off from investing in emerging markets for that reason, because they don't want to fund countries like China and Russia, because you know another risk that we didn't deep dive into today of investing in those countries is that your investments often directly benefit autocrats and their associates who have some kind of ownership in these companies that is very murky because you, you don't actually have transparency into ownership structures either. So I think a lot of people are aware of that and don't want to invest in emerging markets for that reason. But we have created a way for you to be able to participate in emerging markets growth without those autocracies and also with a higher allocation to the freer emerging markets. I know I was very confused when I first started investing about the ADR structure and it's just not it's not transparent of what you actually own when you're buying a stock in an emerging market company that has an ADR that's an ADR. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely the case. You don't actually own the stock. You own, you know, kind of <laughs> this kind of holding company. So that's another structure that American lawyers created to basically make money off of these listings. So again, the greed of Wall Street never fails. As we wrap up the show here, one last question for you. You've been named one of the 100 people transforming business by Business Insider in 2021. What are some of the initiatives or projects that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about? So we actually have a, a project that we're uh, joint working on jointly with the Human Rights Foundation called Defund Dictators. And you can go to defunddictators.org or defunddictators.com to check it out. And it's not completely finished yet, but you can see on there that it's a tool for the public to be able to check the dictator exposure, dictatorship exposure in their emerging markets funds. This only works for funds that are ETFs listed in the US. And you can easily see among, you know, you can choose your data set and see how much dictatorship exposure you have and easily see where that dictatorship exposure is and how, I guess, the degree of autocracy risk that you're in. So that's something that I'm excited about. We did present this at the Oslo Freedom Forum last year, and we'll probably be there again this year and uh, probably going to be um, presenting at several other conferences as well. So we are excited about that project just as, you know, as a way to, to kind of help investors to have easy transparency into their dictatorship exposures. It's a fun project on the side. That is very cool. Thanks for sharing, Perth. I'm going to check that out. And before I let you go, where can the listeners go to connect with you and learn more about everything that you do? Yeah, so our fund website is freedometfs.com and I am on Twitter at Perth underscore toll. I will be sure to include links to all your resources in the show notes below. Perth, thanks again so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.
Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.